Welcome to this Ubula Audio presentation of Wise Blood by Flannery O'Connor. This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. As you may know, Flannery O'Connor was one of America's greatest fiction authors and Catholic apologists. Even more interesting, she was steeped in the traditions and cultures of the Deep South, and her writing is not only extremely Catholic, it is extremely Southern in tone and texture. Published in 1952, Wise Blood is the first novel written by O'Connor. The novel was assembled from disparate short stories she first published in a variety of magazines. The first chapter is an expanded version of her master's thesis, The Train, and other chapters are reworked versions of The Peeler, The Heart of the Park, and Enoch and the Gorilla. The novel itself concerns Hazel Motes, a returning World War II veteran, who has been haunted by a lifelong crisis of faith. The grandson of a traveling Protestant preacher, Motes grew up struggling with doubts regarding salvation and original sin. Following his experiences in the war, Motes has become an avowed atheist and intends to spread a gospel of anti-religion in a new ministry. Despite his aversion to all trappings of Christianity, he constantly contemplates theological issues, and finds himself compelled to purchase a suit and a hat that cause others to mistake him for a minister. His decisions, ironically, always lead him closer to God, and never further. Please note that there is strong language throughout this story's dialogue. The characters are often raw and uneducated, and the story is set in the less enlightened time of the 1950s. You'll be given the unexpurgated version of the book, but please be warned. And now, Wise Blood. Chapter 1 Hazel Motz sat at a forward angle on the green plush train seat, looking one minute at the window as if he might want to jump out of it, and the next down the aisle at the other end of the car. The train was racing through treetops that fell away at intervals and showed the sun standing very red on the edge of the farthest woods. Nearer, the plowed fields curved and faded, and the few hogs dozing in the furrows looked like large spotted stones. Mrs. Wally B. Hitchcock, who faced moats in the section, said that she thought that the early evening like this was the prettiest time of the day, and she asked him if he didn't think so too. She was a fat woman with pink collars and cuffs and pear-shaped legs that slanted off the train seat and didn't reach the floor. He looked at her a second and, without answering, leaned forward and stared down the length of the car again. She turned to see what was back there, but all she saw was a child peering around one of the sections, and farther up at the end of the car, the porter opening the closet where the sheets were kept. "'I guess you're going home,' she said, turning back to him again. He didn't look to her much over twenty, but he had a stiff, black, broad-rimmed hat on his lap, a hat that an elderly country preacher would wear. His suit was a glaring blue, and the price tag was still stapled on the sleeve of it. He didn't answer her or move his eyes from whatever he was looking at. The sack at his feet was an army duffel bag, and she decided that he had been in the army and had been released, and that now he was going home. She wanted to get around close enough to see what the suit had cost him, but she found herself squinting instead of his eyes, 
trying almost to look into them. They were the color of pecan shells and set in deep sockets. The outline of a skull under his skin was plain and insistent. She felt irked and wrenched her attention loose and squinted at the price tag. The suit had cost him $11.98. She felt that placed him and looked at his face again as if she were fortified against it now. He had a nose like a shrike's bill and a long vertical crease on either side of his mouth. His hair looked as if it had been permanently flattened under the heavy hat, but his eyes were what held her attention longest. Their settings were so deep that they seemed to her almost like passages leading somewhere, and she leaned halfway across the space that separated the two seats, trying to see into them. He turned toward the window suddenly, and then almost as quickly turned back again to where his stare had been fixed. What he was looking at was the porter. When he had first got on the train, the porter had been standing between the two cars, a thick-figured man with a round yellow bald head. Hayes had stopped, and the porter's eyes had turned toward him and away, indicating which car he was to go into. When he didn't go, the porter had said, To the left, irritably, and Hayes had moved on. Well, said Mrs. Hitchcock, there's no place like home. He gave her a glance and saw the flat of her face, reddish under a cap of fox-colored hair. She had got on two stops back. He had never seen her before that. I've got to go see the porter, he said. He got up and went back toward the end of the car where the porter had begun making up a berth. He stopped beside him and leaned on his seat arm, but the porter didn't look at him. He was pulling a wall of the section further out. How long does it take you to make one up? Seven minutes, the porter said, not looking at him. Hayes sat down on the seat arm. He said, I'm from East Rod. That isn't on this line, the porter said. You on the wrong train. Going to the city, Hayes said. I said I was raised in East Rod. The porter didn't say anything. East Rod, Hayes said louder. The porter jerked the shade down. You want your berth made up now, or what you standing there for? He asked. East Rod, Hayes said, near Melzy. The porter wrenched one side of the seat flat. I'm from Chicago, he said. He wrenched the other side down. When he bent over, the back of his neck came out in three bulges. Yeah, I bet you are, Hayes said with a leer. Your feet in the middle of the aisle. Somebody would have wanted to get by you, the porter said, turning suddenly and brushing past. Hayes got up and hung there a few seconds. It looked as if he were held by a rope caught in the middle of his back and attached to the train ceiling. He watched the porter move in a fine controlled lurch down the aisle and disappear at the other end of the car. He knew him to be a parham nigger from East Rod. He went back to his section and folded into a slouch position and settled one foot on a pipe that ran under the window. Eastrod filled his head and then went out beyond and filled the space that stretched from the train across the empty, darkening fields. He saw the two houses and the rust-colored road and the few negro shacks and the one barn 
and the stall with the red and white CCC snuff ad peeling across the side of it. Are you going home? Mrs. Hitchcock asked. He looked at her sourly and gripped the black hat by the brim. No, I ain't, he said in a high, nasal Tennessee voice. Mrs. Hitchcock said neither was she. She told him she had been a Miss Weatherman before she married and that she was going to Florida to visit her married sister, Sarah Lucille. She said it seemed like she had never had time to take a trip that far off. The way things happened, one thing after another, it seemed like time went by so fast you couldn't tell if you were young or old. He thought he could tell her she was old if she asked him. He stopped listening to her after a while. The porter passed back up the aisle and didn't look at him. Mrs. Hitchcock lost her train of talk. I guess you're on your way to visit somebody? she asked. Going to talk at ham, he said, and ground himself into the seat and looked at the window. Don't know nobody there, but I'm going to do some things there. I'm going to do some things I have never done before, he said, and gave her a sidelong glance and curled his mouth slightly. She said she knew an Albert Sparks from talking him. She said he was her sister-in-law's brother-in-law, and that he, I ain't from Tuckenham, he said. I said I was going there, that's all. Mrs. Hitchcock began to talk again, but he cut her short and said, That porter was raised in the same place where I was raised, but he says he's from Chicago. Mrs. Hitchcock said she knew a man who lived in Chicago. You might as well go one place or another, he said. That's all I know. Mrs. Hitchcock said, well, the time flies. She said she hadn't seen her sister's children in five years, and she didn't know if she'd know them if she saw them. There were three of them, Roy, Bubba, and John Wesley. John Wesley was six years old, and he had written her a letter. Dear Mama Doll. They called her Mama Doll and her husband Papa Doll. I reckon you think you've been redeemed, he said. Mrs. Hitchcock snatched her collar. I reckon you think you've been redeemed, he repeated. She blushed. After a second, she said, yes, life was an inspiration. And then she said she was hungry and asked him if he didn't want to go back into the diner. He put on the fierce black hat and followed her out of the car. The dining car was full and people were waiting to get in. He and Mrs. Hitchcock stood in line for a half an hour, rocking in the narrow passageway, and every few minutes flattening themselves against the side to let a trickle of people through. Mrs. Hitchcock talked to the woman on the side of her. Hazel Moats looked at the wall. Mrs. Hitchcock told the woman about her sister's husband, who was with the City Water Works in Tula Falls in Alabama and the lady told about a cousin who had cancer of the throat. Finally, they got almost up to the entrance of the diner and could see inside it. There was a steward beckoning people to places and handing out menus. He was a white man with greased black hair and a greased black look to his suit. He moved like a crow, darting from table to table. He motioned for two people, and the line moved up so that Hayes and Mrs. Hitchcock and the lady she was talking to were ready to go next. In a minute, two more people left. 
The steward beckoned, and Mrs. Hitchcock and the woman walked in, and Hayes followed them. The man stopped him and said, Only two, and pushed him back to the doorway. Hayes's face turned an ugly red. He tried to get behind the next person, then he tried to get through the line to go back to the car he had come from, but there were too many people bunched in the opening. He had to stand there while everyone around him looked at him. No one left for a while. Finally, a woman at the far end of the car got up, and the steward jerked his hand. Hayes hesitated and saw the hand jerk again. He lurched up the aisle, falling against two tables on the way and getting his hand wet in somebody's coffee. The steward placed him with three youngish women dressed like parrots. Their hands were resting on the table, red speared at the tips. He sat down and wiped his hand on the tablecloth. He didn't take off his hat. The women had finished eating and were smoking cigarettes. They stopped talking when he sat down. He pointed at the first thing on the menu, and the steward standing over him said, Rat it down, sonny, and winked at one of the women. She made a noise in her nose. He wrote it down, and the steward went away with it. He sat and looked in front of him, glum and intense, at the neck of the woman across from him. At intervals, her hand, holding the cigarette, would pass the spot on her neck, would go out of sight, and then it would pass again, going back down to the table. In a second, a straight line of smoke would blow in his face. After it had blown at him three or four times, he looked at her. She had a bold, game-hen expression, and small eyes pointed directly on him. If you've been redeemed, he said, I wouldn't want to be. He turned his head to the window. He saw his pale reflection with the dark, empty space outside coming through it. A boxcar roared past, chopping the empty space in two, and one of the women laughed. Do you think I believe in Jesus? He said, leaning toward her and speaking almost as if he were breathless. Well, I wouldn't, even if he existed, even if he was on this train. Who said you had to? She asked in a poisonous eastern voice. He drew back. The waiter brought his dinner. He began eating slowly at first, then faster as the women concentrated on watching the muscles that stood out at his jaw as he chewed. He was eating something spotted with eggs and livers. He finished that and drank his coffee, then pulled his money out. The steward saw him, but he wouldn't come total the bill. Every time he passed the table, he would wink at the women and stare at Hayes. Mrs. Hitchcock and the lady had already finished and gone. Finally, the man came up and added up the bill. Hayes shoved the money at him, then pushed past him out of the car. For a while, he stood between two train cars where there was fresh air of a sort and made a cigarette. Then the porter passed between the two cars. Hey, you, Parham! he called. The porter didn't stop. Hayes followed him into the car. All the berths were made up. The man in the station in Melzi had sold him a berth because he said he would have to sit up all night in the coaches otherwise. He had sold him an upper one. Hayes went to it and pulled his sack down and went into the men's room and got ready for the night. He was too full and he wanted to hurry and get in the berth and lie down. He thought he would lie there and look out the window and watch how the country went by a train at night. 
A sign said to get the porter to let you into the uppers. He stuck his sack up into his berth and then went to look for the porter. He didn't find him at one end of the car, and he started back to the other. Going around the corner, he ran into something heavy and pink. It gasped and muttered, Clumsy! It was Mrs. Hitchcock, in a pink wrapper, with her hair in knots around her head. She looked at him with her eyes squinted nearly shut. The knobs framed her face like dark toadstools. She tried to get past him, and he tried to let her, but they were both moving the same way each time. Her face became purplish, except for little white marks over it that didn't heat up. She drew herself stiff and stopped and said, What is the matter with you? He slipped past her and dashed down the aisle and ran into the porter so that the porter fell down. You've got to let me into the berth, Parham, he said. The porter picked himself up and went lurching down the aisle. After a minute, he came lurching back again, stone-faced with the ladder. Hayes stood watching him while he put the ladder up, and then he started up it, and halfway he turned and said, I remember you. Your father was a nigger named Cash Parham. You can't go back there neither, nor anybody else, not if they wanted to. I'm from Chicago, the porter said in an irritated voice. My name is not Parham. Cash is dead, Hayes said. He got the cholera from a pig. The porter's mouth jerked down and he said, My father was a railroad man. Hayes laughed. The porter jerked the ladder off suddenly with a wrench of his arm that sent the boy clutching at the blanket into the berth. He lay on his stomach for a few minutes and didn't move. After a while he turned and found the light and looked around him. There was no window. He was closed up in the thing except for a little space over the curtain. The top of the berth was low and curved over. He lay down and noticed that the curved top looked as if it were not quite closed. He lay there for a while not moving. There was something in his throat like a sponge with an egg taste. He didn't want to turn over for fear it would move. He wanted the light off. He reached up without turning and felt for the button and snapped it and the darkness sank down on him, and then faded a little with light from the aisle that came in through the foot of space, not closed. He wanted it all dark. He didn't want it diluted. He heard the porter's footsteps coming down the aisle, soft into the rug, coming steadily down, brushing against the green curtains, and fading up the other way out of hearing. Then after a while, when he was almost asleep, he thought he heard them again coming back, his curtains stirred and the footsteps faded. In his half-sleep, he thought where he was lying was like a coffin. The first coffin he had seen with somebody in it was his grandfather's. They had left it propped open with a stick of kindling the night it had sat in the house with the old man in it, and Hayes had watched from a distance, thinking he wasn't going to let them shut it on him. When the time comes, his elbow was going to shoot into the crack. His grandfather had been a circuit preacher, a waspish old man who had ridden over three counties with Jesus hidden in his head like a stinger. When it came time to bury him, they shut the top of his box down, and he didn't make a move. Hayes had had two younger brothers. One died in infancy and was put in a small box. 
The other fell in front of a mowing machine when he was seven. This box was about half the size of an ordinary one. And when they shut it, Hayes ran and opened it up again. They said it was because he was heartbroken to part with his brother. But it was not. It was because he had thought, what if he had been in it and they had shut it on him? He was asleep now, and he dreamed he was at his father's bearing again. He saw him humped over on his hands and knees in his coffin, being carried that way to the graveyard. If I can keep my can in the air, nobody can shut nothing on me, he heard the old man say. But when they got his box in the hole, they let it drop down with a thud, and his father flattened out like everybody else. The train jolted and stirred him half awake again, and he thought that there must have been twenty-five people in East Rod then, three moats. Now there were no more moats, no more Ashfields, no more blazing games, Fays, Jacksons, or Parhams. Even the Negroes wouldn't have it. Turning in the road, he saw in the dark the store boarded and the barn leaning and the smaller house half-carted away, the porch gone and no floor in the hall. It had not been that way when he was eighteen years old and had left. There had been ten people there, and he had not noticed that it had got smaller from his father's time. He had left it when he was eighteen years old because the army had called him. He had thought at first he would shoot his foot and not go. He was going to be a preacher like his grandfather, and a preacher can always do without a foot. A preacher's power is in his neck and tongue and arm. His grandfather had traveled three counties in a Ford automobile. Every fourth Sunday he had driven into Eastrod as if he were just in time to save them all from hell, and he was shouting before he had the car door open. People gathered around his Ford because he seemed to dare them to. He would climb up on the nose of it and preach from there, and sometimes he would climb onto the top of it and shout down at them. They were like stones, he would shout. But Jesus had died to redeem them. Jesus was so soul-hungry that he had died, one death for all. But he would have died every soul's death for one. Did they understand that? Did they understand that for each stone soul, he would have died ten million deaths? Had his arms and legs stretched on the cross and nailed ten million times for one of them? The old man would point to his grandson, Hayes. He had a particular disrespect for him because his own face was repeated almost exactly in the child's and seemed to mock him. They know that even for that boy there, for that mean, sinful, unthinking boy standing there with his dirty hands clenching and unclenching at his sides, Jesus would die ten million deaths before he would let him lose his soul. He would chase him over the waters of sin. Do they doubt Jesus would walk on the waters of sin? That boy had been redeemed, and Jesus wasn't going to leave him ever. Jesus would never let him forget he was redeemed. What did the sinner think there was to be gained? Jesus would have him in the end. The boy didn't need to hear it. There was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. He knew by the time he was twelve years old that he was going to be a preacher. Later he saw Jesus move from tree to tree in the back of his mind, a wild, ragged figure motioning him to turn around and come off into the dark where he was not sure of his footing, where he might be walking on the water and not know it, and then suddenly know it and drown. 
Where he wanted to stay was an east rod with his two eyes open and his hands always handling the familiar thing, his feet on the known track, and his tongue not too loose. When he was eighteen, the army called him. He saw the war as a trick to lead him into temptation, and he would have shot his foot except that he trusted himself to get back in a few months, uncorrupted. He had a strong confidence in his power to resist evil. It was something he had inherited, like his face from his grandfather. He thought if the government wasn't through with him in four months, he would leave anyway. He had thought, then, when he was eighteen years old, that he would give them exactly four months of his time. He was gone four years. He didn't get back, even for a visit. The only things from Eastrot he took into the army with him were a black Bible and a pair of silver-rimmed spectacles that had belonged to his mother. He had gone to a country school where he had learned to read and write, but that it was wiser not to. The Bible was the only book he read. He didn't read it often, but when he did, he wore his mother's glasses. They tired his eyes so that after a short time he was always obliged to stop. He meant to tell anyone in the army who invited him to sin that he was from East Rod, Tennessee, and that he meant to get back there and stay back there, that he was going to be a preacher of the gospel, and that he wasn't going to have his soul damned by the government or by any foreign place it sent him to. After a few weeks in the camp, when he had some friends, they were not actually friends, but he had to live with them, he was offered the chance he had been waiting for, the invitation. He took his mother's glasses out of his pocket and put them on. Then he told them he wouldn't go with them for a million dollars and a feather bed to lie on. He was from East Rod, Tennessee, and that he was not going to have his soul damned by the government or any foreign place they... But his voice cracked and he didn't finish. He only stared at them, trying to steal his face. His friends told him that nobody was interested in his damned soul unless it was the priest, and he managed to answer that no priest taking orders from no pope was going to tamper with his soul. They told him he didn't have any soul and left for the brothel. He took a long time to believe them, because he wanted to believe them. All he wanted was to believe them and get rid of it once and for all and he saw the opportunity here to get rid of it, without corruption, to be converted to nothing instead of to evil. The army sent him halfway around the world and forgot him. He was wounded, and they remembered him long enough to take the shrapnel out of his chest. They said they took it out, but they never showed it to him, and he felt it still there, rusted and poisoning him. And then they sent him to another desert and forgot about him again. He had all the time he could want to study his soul in and assure himself that it was not there. When he was thoroughly convinced, he saw that this was something that he had always known. The misery he had was a longing for home. It had nothing to do with Jesus. When the army finally let him go, he was pleased to think that he was still uncorrupted. All he wanted was to get back to East Rod, Tennessee. The black Bible and his mother's glasses were still in the bottom of his duffel bag. He didn't read any book now, but he kept the Bible because it had come from home. He kept the glasses in case his vision should ever become dim. When the army had released him two days before in a city about 300 miles north of where he wanted to be, he had gone immediately to the railroad station there and bought a ticket to Melzi, the nearest railroad stop to Eastrod. Then, since he had to wait four hours for the train, 
he went into a dark dry goods store near the station. It was a thin, cardboard-smelling store that got darker as it got deeper. He went deeper into it and was sold a blue suit and a dark hat. He had his army suit put in a paper sack, and he stuffed it into a trash box in the corner. Once outside in the light, the new suit turned glare blue, and the lines of the hat seemed to stiffen fiercely. He was in Melzy at five o'clock in the afternoon, and he caught a ride on a cottonseed truck that took him more than half the distance to East Rod. He walked the rest of the way and got there at nine o'clock at night, when it had just got dark. The house was dark as the night and open to it, and though he saw that the fence around it had partly fallen and the weeds were growing through the porch floor, he didn't realize all at once that it was only a shell, that there was nothing here but the skeleton of a house. He twisted an envelope and struck a match to it, and went through all the empty rooms, upstairs and down. When the envelope burnt out, he lit another and went through all again. That night he slept on the floor in the kitchen, and a board fell on his head out of the roof and cut his face. There was nothing left in the house but the chiffre robe in the kitchen. His mother had always slept in the kitchen and had had her walnut chiffre robe in there. She had given thirty dollars for it and hadn't bought herself anything else big again. Whoever had got everything else had left that. He opened the drawers. There were two lengths of wrapping cord in the top one and nothing in the others. He was surprised nobody had come and stolen a chiffre robe like that. He took the wrapping cord and tied it around the legs and through the floorboards and left a piece of paper in each of the drawers. This chiffre robe belongs to Hazel Motes. Do not steal it or you will be hunted down and killed. He thought about the chiffre robe in his half-sleep and decided his mother would rest easier in her grave, knowing it was guarded. If she came looking any time at night, she would see. He wondered if she walked at night and came there ever. She would come with that look on her face, unrested and looking, the same look he had seen through the crack of her coffin. He had seen her face through the crack when they were shutting the top on her. He was sixteen then. He had seen the shadow that came down over her face and pulled her mouth down as if she wasn't any more satisfied dead than alive, as if she were going to spring up and shove the lid back and fly out and satisfy herself. But they shut it. She might have been going to fly out of there. She might have been going to spring. He saw her in his sleep, terrible like a huge bat, dart from the closing, fly out of there but it was falling dark on top of her, closing down all the time. From inside he saw it closing, coming closer, closer down, cutting off the light in the room. He opened his eyes and saw it closing, and he sprang up between the crack and wedged his head and shoulders through it, hung there dizzy with the dim light of the train, slowly showing the rug below. He hung there over the top of the birth curtain, and saw the porter at the other end of the car, a white shape in the darkness, standing there watching him and not moving. I'm sick, he called. I can't be closed up in this thing. Get me out. The porter stood watching him and didn't move. Jesus, Hayes said. Jesus. The porter didn't move. 
Jesus been gone a long time, he said in a sour, triumphant voice. Chapter 2 Hayes didn't get to the city until six the next evening. That morning, he had got off the train at a junction stop to get some air, and while he had been looking the other way, the train had slid off. He had run after it, but his hat had blown away, and he had had to run in the other direction to save the hat. Fortunately, he had carried his duffel bag out with him, lest someone should steal something out of it. He had to wait six hours at the junction stop until the right train came. When he got to Talkingham, as soon as he stepped off the train, began to see signs and light. Peanuts. Western Union. Ajax. Taxi. Hotel. Candy. Most of them were electric and moved up and down or blinked frantically. He walked very slowly, carrying his duffel bag by the neck. His head turned to one side and then the other, first toward one side and then another. He walked the length of the station and then walked back as if he might be going to get on the train again. His face was stern and determined under the heavy hat. No one observing him would have known that he had no place to go. He walked up and down the crowded waiting room two or three times, but he did not want to sit on the benches there. He wanted a private place to go to. Finally, he pushed open a door at one end of the station, where a plain black and white sign said, Men's Toilet, White. He went into a narrow room lined on one side with wash basins, and on the other with a row of wooden stalls. The walls of this room had once been a cheerful, bright yellow, but now they were nearly green and were decorated with handwriting and with various detailed drawings of the parts of the body of both men and women. Some of the stalls had doors on them, and on one of the doors, written with what must have been crayon, was the large word, Welcome, followed by three exclamation points and something that looked like a snake. Hayes entered this one. He had been sitting in the narrow box for some time, studying the inscriptions on the sides and the door, before he noticed one that was to the left over the toilet paper. It was written in a drunken-looking hand. It said, Mrs. Leora Watts, 60 Buckley Road, the friendliest bed in town, brother. After a while, he took a pencil out of his pocket and wrote down the address on the back of an envelope. Outside, he got in a yellow taxi and told the driver where he wanted to go. The driver was a small man with a big leather cap on his head and the tip of a cigar coming out from the center of his mouth. They had driven a few blocks before Hayes noticed him squinting at him through the rearview mirror. You ain't no friend of hers, are you? The driver asked. I never saw her before, Hayes said. Where'd you hear about her? She don't usually have no preachers for company. He did not disturb the position of the cigar when he spoke. He was able to speak on either side of it. I ain't no preacher, Hayes said, frowning. I only seen her name in the toilet. You look like a preacher, the driver said. That hat looks like a preacher hat. It ain't, Hayes said, and leaned forward and gripped the back of the front seat. It's just a hat. They stopped in front of a small one-story house between a filling station and a vacant lot. Hayes got out and paid his fare through the window. It ain't only the hat, the driver said. 
It's a look in your face somewheres. Listen, Hayes said, tilting the hat over one eye. I'm not a preacher. I understand, the driver said. It ain't anybody perfect on this green earth of God's. Preachers, nor anybody else. And you can tell people better how terrible sin is if you know from your own personal experience. Hayes put his head in at the window, knocking the hat accidentally straight again. He seemed to have knocked his face straight, too, for it became completely expressionless. Listen, he said. Get this. I don't believe in anything. The driver took the stump of the cigar out of his mouth. Not nothing at all? he asked, leaving his mouth open after the question. I don't have to say it but once to nobody, Hayes said. The driver closed his mouth, and after a second he returned the piece of cigar to it. That's the trouble with you preachers. You've all got too good to believe in anything. And he drove off with a look of disgust and righteousness. Hayes turned and looked at the house he was going into. It was little more than a shack, but there was a warm glow in one front window. He went up to the front porch and put his eye to a convenient crack in the shade and found himself looking directly at a large white knee. After some time, he moved away from the crack and tried the front door. It was not locked. He went into a small, dark hall with a door on either side of it. The door to the left was cracked and let out a narrow shaft of light. He moved into the light and looked through the crack. Mrs. Watts was sitting alone in a white iron bed, cutting her toenails with a large pair of scissors. She was a big woman with very yellow hair and white skin that glistened with a greasy preparation. She had on a pink nightgown that would have better fit a smaller figure. Hayes made a noise with the doorknob, and she looked up and observed him standing behind the crack. She had a bold, steady, penetrating stare, and after a minute, she turned it away from him and began cutting her toenails again. He went in and stood looking around him. There was nothing much in the room but the bed and a bureau and a rocking chair full of dirty clothes. He went to the bureau and fingered a nail file and then an empty jelly glass while he looked into the yellowish mirror and watched Mrs. Watts, slightly distorted, grinning at him. His senses were stirred to the limit. He turned quickly and went to her bed and sat down on the far corner of it. He drew a long draft of air through one side of his nose and began to run his hand carefully along the sheet. The pink tip of Mrs. Watt's tongue appeared and moistened her lower lip. She seemed just as glad to see him as if he had been an old friend, but she didn't say anything. He picked up her foot, which was heavy but not cold, and moved it about an inch to one side, and kept his hand on it. Mrs. Watts' mouth split in a wide, full grin that showed her teeth. They were small and pointed, and speckled with green, and there was a wide space between each of them. She reached out and gripped Hayes' arm just above the elbow. "'You hunting something?' she drawled. If she had not had him so firmly by the arm, he might have leapt out the window. Involuntarily, his lips formed the words, Yes, ma'am, but no sound came through them. Something on your mind? Mrs. Watts asked, 
pulling his rigid figure a little closer. Listen, he said, keeping his voice tightly under control. I come for the usual business. Mrs. Watt's mouth became more round, as if she were perplexed at this waste of words. Make yourself at home, she said simply. They stared at each other for almost a minute, and neither moved. Then he said in a voice that was higher than his usual voice, What I mean to have you know is, I'm no damn preacher. Mrs. Watts eyed him steadily with only a slight smirk. Then she put her other hand under his face and tickled it in a motherly way. That's okay, son, she said. Mama don't mind if you ain't a preacher. <laughs>